If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We are slow walking our way through Jesus' sermon here today. And let me find it myself one moment. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. So Christians are often accused of being judgmental. And I believe this is in part because we affirm the reality of sin. There are things that humans do that transgress God's moral law and are objectively wrong in his eyes. There are actions, there are attitudes, there are even thoughts that hurt God's heart and evoke his his passion for justice and provoke his holy wrath. There are things that we both do and don't do that are detrimental to ourselves and disastrous for others. And often clinging to Jesus as the truth means that we agree with him in what he calls sin is actually sin. And I'm reminded of the prophet's warning to God's people in Isaiah 5, 20 through 21 He writes this, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah is calling us to be discerning, to be able to discern what is evil in God's assessment and call it evil, to be able to discern what is good in God's assessment and deem it good to not be wise in our own eyes, but to adhere to the Lord's standard. For he is the one who knows what leads to life and to flourishing. But calling what God calls sin, sin, is not necessarily being judgmental. Sometimes, admittedly, we are just judgmental. But to any who would be his apprentices, Jesus speaks These instructions as he trains us in the way. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we have an interpretive decision to make in this passage because the Greek word judge, which is krino, uh, in the New Testament, it has two meanings just as it does in English. It can either be option A, to discern, to separate, to distinguish between, or it can be option B, to bring to trial, to, to pass judgment, to sit in a place of superiority and condemn So what definition do you think Jesus intends here? Is it definition A or is it definition B? Well, you might say, why does it matter? Can't it be both? Well, allow me to demonstrate how the message of this passage differs with each of those different meanings. And I'm going to use to illustrate this, this bowl of fruit. And hopefully I will not drop it everywhere. And I'm stealing this illustration from a book I read called um, What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jathani. Some of you might be familiar with some of his later books. So, 
We're going to use this. I'm going to judge this fruit. So option one, allow me to discern, to separate, to make distinction between. Okay? Ah, apples are not oranges. And if we're going with definition A, then Jesus is saying, don't judge. Who are you to make a distinction between apples and oranges? To call an apple an apple and an orange an orange. What are oranges? What are apples? All are fruit, and and you're no horticulturalist. Who are you to say? Is that Jesus' message here? In our kind of relativism of our culture... That sounds familiar, but here's option two. Let me judge this fruit. Let's bring it to trial and pass verdict. Let me sit in a space of superiority and condemn. And I will tell you, oranges are a lesser fruit. They are lesser than apples. Actually, oranges are kind of gross. They're pulpy, and there's a reason that hurricanes hit Florida so much. Because God hates oranges. Eradicate oranges. Take them out of the hotel continental breakfast, especially out of our kids' school lunches. Down with Big Orange and the orange agenda. They are terrible. They're not that good. But they're not that bad either. Let's be honest. So which is it? Followers of Jesus, do not discern and you will not be scrutinized. Or is it followers of Jesus, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. It's the second one. And we know this because while Luke is writing in Greek, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. And Aramaic is a Semitic language, and Semitic languages like Hebrew, they bring clarity through what is called parallelism. Often they will say the same thing twice in different words to make sure that the full range of meaning is grasped and not missed. So what do we see here? We see do not judge is spoken in parallel with do not condemn. Jesus doesn't intend for us to suspend our faculties of discernment and never find fault in others. But what he does command us is to not take the seat of judgment and render verdict over someone else. Jesus expects us to refrain from any pronouncement, either internally or externally, that condemns or writes off or declares someone to be hopelessly broken or wicked or lost. That sort of judgment devalues, and it comes dangerously close to asserting that the person or the group is excluded from the reach of God's love. We're very careful with this in our family of not making these identity verdicts over one another, right? Not, hey, my, my, my sister was bullying me, but my sister is a bully, right? One is a, is a verdict. It's an identity statement. It is a condemnation. And notice as well that that first pair, that couplet of do not judge, do not condemn, is itself standing in parallel with another pair. Forgive and give with good measure. 
In other words, the discernment we exercise towards others must reflect the liberality of God's heart. In both his eagerness to pardon and his passion for this costly, extravagant grace. There's a sign that sits in my office that some find overly simplistic. It reads, believe the best and forgive the rest. It reminds me too of something another pastor says. You cannot both love and judge at the same time. It is impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you are using others to ascribe worth to yourself. I've been chatting with one of our brothers this week about how is it that historically Christians have been at such animosity and have treated so poorly God's people, the Jews, as you look back over church history. And I think it's part because folks got, grew frustrated that, that the Jews didn't see Jesus as their Messiah. Or there was interactions where, where people got upset or disappointed and they started to render verdict. They started to write off. And all of a sudden, hearts hardened and it is impossible to both judge and love at the same time. Jesus says it is not for you to judge. It is not your job to declare someone's status as innocent or guilty. That is my job, Jesus says. It's reserved for me. This is John 5, 22 through 23. For the Father in heaven judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus alone has been granted permission to sit in judgment, and he's actually only the only worthy one to do so because he's both holy God and the only human who ever lived a perfect, spotless life. And what does Jesus choose to do with that authority? John 3, 17 through 18 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Judgment is not a complicated matter. We are condemned already, for we are all guilty. But Jesus doesn't show up. He doesn't take on our humanity and enter into our story to administer punishment, but to administer mercy, to make a way where justice can be served and wrong can be made right, and you and I can be washed clean and made new. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, those who are dead in their brokenness, in their rebellions, in their sin, will hear the voice of the Son of God 
and those who hear will live. And such an opportunity for us, it required Jesus to pay the ultimate price, to carry our wrongdoing and our failures to a cross, and to prove victorious over the grave. That was the only way for us to experience both forgiveness and life, to hear what is recorded in James. Mercy triumphs over justice. Yet that too was Jesus' prerogative. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? God judges those outside. And in this age of salvation and good news, God is choosing to lead with grace, not condemnation. And he invites us to do likewise. It says in 1 John 2.6, Whoever says he abides in Jesus, that is in relationship with Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So can I make a confession this morning? I learn better through stories than I do through teaching. If you give me a lecture on a topic, I'll begin to absorb some of the information but if you gave me that same, those same lessons and that same data through a narrative, I will begin to understand that information. It's just how I'm wired. So I want us to process this morning this gospel lesson through a gospel story. And I think there's no better place to drop in than into the gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I want you guys, if you have a physical Bible, to turn there. And I say it's a good place to drop in because this is the story of a woman caught in adultery, and it seems that it was itself dropped into John's gospel. So if anyone has found this in their physical Bibles, what do you notice about this text? Does anyone have a physical Bible? It doesn't matter your translation. What do you notice about this passage? John 8, 1 through 11. What do you see? Brackets. Yes, the text itself is contained within double brackets. And those brackets indicate that in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel, this story is not included here. In fact, if you get down to the fine print, what you'll discover is that earlier versions of the gospels either don't contain this story or it's stuck in different places in the Gospel of John, often it shows up as well in the Gospel of Luke. So what are we to make of this? Well, there's a lot more that can be said, but here's the long and the short of it. We have received this passage as an authentic Jesus story that was cherished by the early church. And in my opinion, it was likely not written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, but that the story was included here because it fit thematically into the flow of John's story. It's my guess, and again, this is my speculation, but other scholars agree, that the woman at the heart of the story likely became a prominent member of the Christian community, and her testimony um, both became widely known and was cherished by those who heard it. 
And eventually, either she or someone else, the language sounds an awful lot like Luke, when you look at it in the Greek, wrote it down for the benefit of future generations. And and the story was included, it was a a page that was included in the collection of Jesus' earliest biographies, a.k.a. the four Gospels. So this is a long and a short way of saying, don't let the double brackets scare you. You will find Christ inside of them. So let's dive in and let's see what the Lord has to teach us in what I believe was originally a standalone Jesus story recorded by Luke. So here is what we read. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. So I want you to imagine yourself in this scene. Immerse yourself there in the sights of the temple court, the sounds of the worshipers bustling about, the smells of the midday sacrifices. Place yourself there as an observer or even a a participant in these happenings. We're about to witness a sort of public contest This is an honor-shame culture, so that means every public encounter carries with it some import. Every public interaction you have will impact your standing. When someone engages someone in the temple courts, both parties are stepping into an arena, and there are reputational stakes on the line. Someone will emerge with a rising stock. Uh, in the eyes of their community, and someone will leave with a tarnished reputation. So we have in the left corner, Jesus emerges. He's surrounded by his boys, his posse of disciples, and his other followers. And then from the right corner come the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, complete with their entourages. And in tow, they are bringing a woman with them. She's wild-eyed and afraid. Her, her clothes and her hair are disheveled. 
and it appears she hasn't had an opportunity to bathe for the last several days. And a challenge rings out across the temple courts. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And Jesus has an incredibly odd response. He bends down and he starts writing in the dust. And his opponents have thrown down this gauntlet and then he ignores them to doodle in the dirt. And we love to speculate about what Jesus could be writing, but the storyteller doesn't seem to care about that detail. I think that's because this is the ancient equivalent of, uh, you know, pulling out your cell phone and pretending you got a call. Something like that. He's refusing to engage. He won't enter into debate with them on these terms. Why? Well, there could be several reasons. Maybe Jesus sees the inherent injustice in the setup. The law of Moses specified that both the man and the woman would be punished. Where's the guy? They were caught in the act, but he gets to run free. How did he wiggle out of this? The law also stipulates that charges be brought by two or three eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses are nowhere to be seen. What's more, how long have they been holding this woman? And to what end? Are we supposed to believe that she was caught in the act right there in the temple? Another factor maybe in Jesus' refusal to engage could have to do with his unwillingness to pick a fight, to get into a confrontation with the Romans. The Rome had removed capital jurisdiction from the Jewish courts except for temple violations. The Jews had no legal right to execute this woman. And calling for her stoning would spark a conflict with the pagan authorities. Yes, a conflict between Jesus and Rome was coming. He would have a date with Pontius Pilate, but maybe this was not yet the right time. So the religious leaders, they want to trap Jesus. They want to know how to label him so they can know how to destroy him. Will he be revealed as a zealot for the law and thus an enemy of Rome and we can rat him out to Pilate? Or is he going to be unwilling to stone this woman and we can say, look, he, here he rejects God's law and he surrenders jurisdiction to our oppressors. Jesus' opponents, they keep jabbing at him. They jab, jab. Come on, step into the arena. Be a man and engage. And then you have a church father named St. Augustine of Hippo who offers us his commentary on what he presumes to be Jesus' internal monologue in this moment. And it's so beautiful that I just want to share it with you. Augustine writes, He who had come as a redeemer, not as a hanging judge, he who had come to redeem what was lost, turned away from them as though unwilling to look at them. This turning away from them is not empty of meaning. Something is to be understood by this turning away. It is though he were saying, You bring me this sinner 
you who are sinners yourselves, if you think I ought to condemn sins, I shall begin with you. It's as if Jesus is saying, do you really want me to start meeting out the punishments that your sins deserve? You don't want that. Trust me. You don't want to start down this road because if things got real, we wouldn't start with your favorite sins to condemn and demonize in others. We wouldn't start with the sexual sins of other people. We would start, say, with your oppression of your workers or your neglect of the poor or your corrupt financial practices. Maybe we'd start with your sense of pride and moral superiority and self-righteousness. Surely hypocrisy would be up on the firing line first. So Jesus' response rings out. He throws his haymaker. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the blow, it lands It lands first on the best of Jesus' opponents, the elders, those with the highest standing in their community, the most respected, the most experienced, the most ethical and righteous. And to their credit, they're also the wisest. They know instantly that if this is a time for the just reckoning of sins, they would not emerge from the arena unscathed. Witnesses are supposed to be the first to throw a stone, but not now the only thing they can bear witness to is the ugliness that lurks in their own hearts and lives. They withdraw from the arena, defeated and shamed. And seeing the great ones fall, Jesus' lesser opponents, the younger men, the dumber men, as a young man I can say that, They bow out as well. And again, let's hear Augustine. He says this, This is the voice of justice. Let the sinner be punished, but not by sinners. Let the law be carried out, but not by transgressors of the law. And so this woman, she's left in the arena with Jesus, the only one worthy of throwing a stone And she's not out of the woods yet. But he again refuses to engage. He's entirely focused on scribbling in the dust. And you can just hear the woman's quiet sobs and her shuffling feet. And then Jesus finally stands up and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And again, I'll defer my commentary to Augustine. He writes, the two were left alone. The pitiful and the one who was pity himself. They left the woman with her great sin in the keeping of him who was without sin. The two were left alone, the pitiful and pity 
himself. And because she had heard that he was without sin, let him cast the first stone at her, she most likely expected to be punished by one in whom no sin could be found. But he who had repelled her adversaries with the voice of justice lifted on her the eyes of mercy. Jesus refuses to condemn her. He's the one who has the right to pass judgment and he refuses to rule on the matter. She has been forgiven, rescued from immediate death. And instead of condemning her, Jesus instead chooses to call her to transformation, to a lifestyle of repentance, to go and sin no more. And then the curtain closes on this scene. This is a powerful story. And I think it offends us all equally. What do we do with this Jesus? Is he going squishy? Is he rejecting the just punishment for sin that God set down in the law? Has this friend of sinners truly gone off the deep end and started endorsing their sinful lifestyles? Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How do we do that here? Well, first we must note that the major note of this passage is mercy. It's the central movement of the story. It's what Jesus said last week in our text. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus, in his divine patience, responds to our human weakness with mercy. And so if we are going to walk as Jesus walked, extending mercy should be the primary item on our agenda. Second, Jesus, the only one who is qualified and righteous enough to judge, here chooses not to. If he refused to condemn this woman to bring down a sentence of justice, how can we? Romans 8, 1 through 5. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh any longer but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't condemn us, but he does not leave us in our mess. He calls us to repentance and gives us the ability to live differently. To live in the power and the purity of God's Spirit. 
So no, it's not that we're okay with sin now. Sin is still sin. If anything, Jesus goes harder on calling sin, sin than we do. We make excuses, exceptions. We point to extenuating circumstances. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus isn't soft on sin. We're still called to die to sin and to live to Christ, to live in accordance with his spirit of holiness and righteousness and life. We are continually and repeatedly called to a lifestyle of repentance, to turning towards Jesus and his way, abiding in step with him. And instead of choosing to condemn, Jesus instead invites the woman to a lifestyle of repentance, of turning from her past and walking forward in his newness of life. And we should do the same. So the first movement of this story is mercy. The second movement is a call to repentance, to go and sin no more. And if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, this is the example that he set for us. So what do we do with all the loose ends? We've been wrestling through these teachings of Jesus and we want to know the loose ends and the exceptions and how this all comes together. Is there no longer a just punishment for sins? Well, obviously the answer is is no because we believe Jesus took the just punishment for our sins when he died for us on a cross. But what impact will this mercy have on our community what does this leniency communicate to future would-be adulterers? Are there no consequences to sin? Again, I don't have this all figured out. But I know that sin carries with it its own natural consequences. We never sin and emerge unscathed. I don't have all the answers, nor do I know how to tie up all the loose ends. I'm just as scandalized and mesmerized by Jesus as you. But I know this. Jesus is big enough to figure this all out, to welcome us into his life, to demonstrate mercy and truly and ultimately uproot brokenness and sin and pain and injustice from our world. And I'm going to trust that he is in the business of doing that. That is his job, and our job is what he says. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Forgive and give graciously with a cup overflowing. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Paul, who's a companion of Luke, sums it up this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's as simple as that. The one who could have showed up and judged. It could have been a real quick incarnation. It could have been, I'm here, you're guilty, we're done. Packing up and going home. Instead, he made a way to show broken, unworthy, lost people mercy. And not just mercy, but change, renewal, forgiveness, new life. He says, that's my work. Trust me in it. You show my heart. So let's work on that this week and let's leave the rest in the hands of Jesus. I feel like that is a big enough task for me this week. So let's pray. Dear God, Lord, we thank you. The one who is pity himself, compassion himself, grace and love himself. There was just verdict spoken over us, God. It was true. We were fallen and unworthy. But what does the hymn say? You interposed your precious blood. You stood between us and holy wrath, between us and just punishment. And you said, I can make a way to rescue and make new, to heal and forgive. May we marvel at your heart and may your heart be shown through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.